Good morning, everybody. So the, uh, when Rob asks us to preach and uh, says uh, we get to do it on Labor Day weekend, that's a good thing, because you know if you mess it up, it's going to be before the absolute minimum of people. <laughs> so it's always good. Um, so today's message is going to be in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 through 20. The message title is A Christian Certainty in Uncertain Times. Uh, quick show of hands, who feels more uncertain now about what's coming next year than you did last year? Everybody, yeah. 2020 has actually uh, become a verb now. Um, don't 2020 that because of how bad 2020 has gotten. Um, just uh, uh, the uncertainties and how quickly things change nowadays. Uh, it's really difficult to find your footing, right? So uh, anyone remembers uh, phones, what phones used to be like? Or sorry, no, uh, taxis is our first, first example. We used to hail taxis with our hands. Now we use our cell phone, and the taxi comes to you. You don't have to find them anymore. Or uh, what about phones? They used to have cords. They used to sit on desks. Now they probably just stay in your pocket, and you have a little earpiece that you get to stick in your ear. Uh, how about shopping for all the ladies? You used to go and actually look at stuff in the store. Now. Sit at home, take a look at that picture online, see if it fits. If it doesn't, send it right back. Uh, if Dustin was here, this one's definitely for him, plaid. Plaid used to be for lumberjocks, or like, you know, guys who were like out working in the field. Now it's for the guys with beards and man buns. Yeah, I'll have to send that to Dustin. Uh, how about videos? We used to go to Blockbuster. I remember going to Blockbuster. I'm old enough to remember that. Now. Disney Plus, Netflix, it's all online. This one's near and dear to my heart, video games. That's what they used to look like. Now that's what they look like. That's crazy what a difference that is, right? That's only like 10 years difference. Uh, how about doctors? We used to actually go talk to doctors. Now you just Google it and chances are you're dying because everything on Google, like mild cough, you know, slight fever, you're probably dying. That's what Google will tell you. How about news? I don't know if you remember Walter Cronkite. My business is to communicate facts. My instructions do not allow me to make any comments upon the facts which I communicate. That was his perspective. Nowadays, we have anchors telling us things like, Jesus Christ admittedly was not perfect when he was here on earth. Thanks for telling me your theology, guys. How about uh, things that we thought were really basic, like men and women? Genesis 1.27. So God created him in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, this is a partial list of the options that are available to you on Facebook. Agender, androgen, androgynist, bigender, cis, cisgender, cisfemale, cismale, cisman, cis-woman, cisgender female, cisgender man, cisgender man. I don't know why they have so many different versions of cisgender. Female to male, FTM, gender fluid, gender nonconforming, gender questioning, gender variant, gender queer, intersex, male to female, so on and so forth. And this is only a partial list. I want to know what two-spirit is. That's a weird one, two-spirit. This world is uh, shifting sand, in the words of Scripture. You're not going to find any kind of solid ground in the world because the world doesn't have a foundation. It's constantly changing. Things even as basic as what is a man and what is a woman no longer consistent. You can't find a constant definition of that in the world anymore. So as a Christian, where do we go? to find uncertainty in uncertain times. And we'll find our answer in scripture. Turn with me, if you would, to Hebrews chapter six. 
We're going to read starting in verse 13, and we'll go through verse 20. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. If you would, go ahead and close your eyes and pray with me. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we come before you now, I pray that you give me words to speak only that which is honorable and truthful. I pray that our congregation remembers that I am a man with feet of clay, just like they are. But we now come before your holy and perfect word, and in it there is truth. Give us now eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts freshly tilled and waiting to receive the teaching and encouragement you have for us this morning. We pray this all in the gracious name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. All right, so our thesis this morning, the one big thing we want to roll into is we want to to remind ourselves of the promises of God so that we might be anchored to truth in a world that loves falsehood. So I repeat that one more time. We must remind ourselves of the promises of God so that we might be anchored to truth in a world that loves falsehood. So really quickly before we dive into the text itself, let's give ourselves a little bit of context. So we're in the book of Hebrews. Historically, um, they're uh, used the present tense kind of consistently throughout the book when we're trying to date this book. It constantly talks about the sacrificial system and the priesthood and it uses present tense uh, language to talk about that. So we're confident that this book falls prior to the destruction of the temple in AD 70. It was written to a congregation where the temple would have still been in operation. Uh, We don't know who the author is for certain. We believe that, uh, well, there's lots of theories out there. Long story short, we don't really know for sure. The most convincing argument that I saw was uh, because the theology is very highly Pauline, but the way it was written is very much like Luke. And the fact that it's not a traditional letter, so like in in normal letters, there's a greeting saying like, you know, greetings to so-and-so, and and then they end it. Hebrews doesn't have any of that. It it reads like a sermon. So the uh, best theory that I heard was that it's Paul preaching to a congregation made up mostly of Jews, and Luke was the one writing it down afterward with the people saying, you know, like, hey, you know, uh, uh, that was a really good message. Other people should hear that. So then he wrote it down, and then that got sent out. Who knows? Um, Long story short is we don't have a firm answer on who the author is. We do know, however, that the audience was primarily Jewish because it leans very heavily into the Levitical priesthood and the sacrificial system in the temple. So the the people that this was being taught to would have understood that system very intimately. So it would not have been a congregation primarily of Gentiles. And then lastly, even though the congregation uh, wasn't new, they were very immature. If we roll back just a little bit into Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12, we read, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you, again, the basic principles and oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. So even though this church had been there for a while and there was an expectation that by now you should be teaching others, even so, they were still very much immature in their faith. 
So that's kind of the historical context of where uh, this is being written to. And then theologically, the entire book is largely a consistent comparison between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. So Old Covenant being the sacrificial system, the priesthood, uh, everything laid out in the Old Testament, and the New Covenant being what Jesus instituted, a covenant of grace. You are no longer under the law. You can now come to the foot of the cross and have direct communication with God, with Christ as your high priest. So there's that that uh, back and forth, the old being presented as a shadow or a type um, in, the, in the theological word for it, uh, a image of what was to come, and then the new being the eternal fulfillment of that type. So knowing now our historical context and our kind of theological context, let's move into breaking this apart verse by verse. So we're going to start in verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, stop. God made a promise to Abraham. Okay, what promise did God make to Abraham? Let's uh, bounce back, if you would, with me real quick. We're going to go to Genesis 15, 5 through 12. The nice thing about going verse by verse is it keeps you from uh, making foolish mistakes in terms of uh, inserting your own uh, read and desires into things as much as possible. But it also takes a lot of time because <laughs> you got to go little bit by little bit. So first, for when God made a promise to Abraham, what's the promise? Genesis 15, starting in verse 5. And he brought him, uh, God, that being God brought Abram outside, and he's Abram at this point. There hasn't been a covenant set between God and Abraham, so his name is still Abram. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said, so shall your offspring be. And he, that is Abram, believed the Lord, and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of the Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, he being Abram, O God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid them each over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. I suspect that's because when you cut a bird in half, you really only have feathers. They're pretty small, so didn't cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcass, Abram drove them away. So this is kind of the, the preparation for, in the ancient world, what they would have done to what they called cutting a covenant. So when you wanted to make an agreement with someone that was rock solid, that could never be reneged on, you would uh, get an animal, you would literally cut the animal in half, spread out the two halves on either side, and then together you and the person you were making the covenant with would walk through the bleeding sides of that animal and pass through to the other side. And the, the image that you were trying to convey to someone is, if either of us fails to hold up our side, may what we just did to this animal happen to us. So you're basically putting your life there and saying, like, uh, in the same way that you know, this pictures what should happen to me, I'm saying, like, I will never renege on the agreement we have, because if I did, this is what would happen to me. So it was the strongest covenant that you could possibly make in the ancient world. So then dropping down to verse 17, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, or sorry, uh, we need to pop just a little bit up from there, sorry. Verse 12 is important. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Now drop down to verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land 
from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites and the Kenizzites and the Cadmonites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Rephaim and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Girgashites and the Debusites. So it's important to note there that uh, Abraham cut the animals in half and then he waited, you know, driving off the, the animals that wanted to come and eat these uh, carcasses and was waiting for God to basically come and walk with him through so that they could make covenant together. But instead, God made him fall asleep and a flaming torch and a pot passes through on its own. God makes covenant with himself in making this promise to Abraham. And in doing that, the image is that Abram can't even renege on this. This is entirely of God. God is making a covenant with Abraham and only God is binding himself to it. So it's not in any way dependent upon Abraham's faithfulness. It is dependent only upon God. So that was that little chunk for verse 13. So then coming back again to our book of Hebrews. Again, we're in chapter 6, verse 13. So for when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. So there's nothing in this universe that is greater than God, nothing in all of existence. So God is trying to find what is the highest thing possibly that God can swear by. Right? We've heard, like, uh, if you read uh, the Quran, uh, Allah in the Quran will swear by the stars. Um, in uh, it's Shakespeare, uh, when Romeo is trying to woo Juliet, he says, by the moon, you know, I say this. And she says, don't swear by the moon because it's always changing. Right? So it was a very common thing that when people wanted to tie their oath to something that meant something more meaningful, they would tie it to something bigger than themselves, you know. Unless this mountain moves, nothing, you know, will ever change. Uh, you know, even in songs nowadays, right, I cross an entire ocean to get to you. But whatever the image is, you always try to tie what you're saying to something bigger and greater than you in order to make it more meaningful. God doesn't have anything bigger or greater than himself to go to. And so he swears by himself. He says, surely... I will bless you and I will multiply you because there's no one greater by whom to swear. So he swears by himself. So then thinking back again to that promise with Abram, normally both of them would have walked through together, but instead God walked through only by himself because he had nothing that he could tie that oath to greater than himself. A normal people would have been trying to tie their oaths to this image of the animal slaughtered. God doesn't have that option available to him because that would have been less than in giving that promise. So then continuing on in verse 15. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. So this was the promise both that he would uh, bring a salvation to his people, that he would bless the world, and that he would multiply his people generation upon generation. We have seen both of those uh, played out. Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. He got to see both his son Isaac born to his wife, who was very advanced in years. I think she was in her 70s at the time. Uh, so he had to wait a long, long time, but God fulfilled on that promise and was good to it. And uh, also that the nations of the world are blessed. We are here now gathered together having received this good word because of the promise that God made to Abraham and the faithfulness that he had to it. Continuing then to the verse 16. For people swear by something greater themselves, greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. This is kind of what we were talking about just a moment ago, that when people 
try to do something in order to make someone say, like, this word means more than me just saying I'm going to do something. You tie it to something greater than yourselves. And this is a little bit difficult for us to understand nowadays because we have things like lawyers and contracts. Uh, you, when you shake someone's hand, that used to, once upon a time, be a much more meaningful gesture because the, uh, the shame that would come upon you societally if you ever reneged on your word was very significant. So there was a lot of pressure to make sure that when you said, I will do something, and you gave it as a promise, that you held true to it. That's less of a thing for us societally now. But even back then, so back then, when he says, when people swear by something greater than, them, than themselves, all disputes, an oath is final for confirmation, they would have said, OK, you guys made an oath to each other. You're arguing over what's the way to do it. What was the oath you swore to each other? That is the final arbiter that will determine what is right and what is wrong in this situation. So 16 then goes into 17. He's saying, for people swear by something greater than themselves and all their disputes, an oath is final, trying to give us this picture of this is why God did it. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. Uh, so really quickly, let's break this apart a little bit. Verse 17. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his promise, uh, of his purpose, who are those heirs of the promise? And what is the promise? The promise was, looking back up at verse 13, for when God made a promise to Abraham. So God promised these things to Abraham and that Abraham's heirs would be recipients of the blessing that was given to him. So then we now, are heirs of that promise because we have received the faith that God gave to Abraham back when he made his covenant with him. So then continuing on, he guaranteed it with an oath. We saw what that oath was. That was the separating of the animals and then God passing through all on his own. This is all of God, not of man. And then in verse 18, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. So, it is, uh, the, so that by two unchangeable things, it is impossible for God to lie. That's just pointing out the fact that we have two sources here of encouragement. The first is that God gave an oath by himself. The second is that it's impossible for God to lie. When he says something, you know it is true. Therefore, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that's set before us. So there's two things that give us this assurance, this reason that we can trust in God's promise. The first is that he made an oath and that he made it by himself. He does not change. He made it by the greatest thing that is available to him to make an oath by himself. And then secondly, he can't lie. Uh, and I don't know if you guys have ever heard that. It's uh, a logical fallacy about the idea of like, can God make a rock big enough that he can't carry it? Uh, he can't, just so you know. Uh, but. Uh, it's un not uncommon for people to say, oh, God can do anything, right? He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He can do whatever he wants. That's strictly not true because God can't do anything that's inconsistent with his character. God cannot sin, right? So God cannot lie because he is himself truth. He embodies truth. We know what truth is because of who God is. We know what faithfulness is because of who God is. He defines them by his very character. So God has a complete inability to lie. He can only speak truth. So then going into verse 19, because of this, we have a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. 
Now, that image would have been very powerful to the Jewish uh, audience that was listening to this. Uh, and to, to understand why, we need to remember what the uh, old tabernacle and then the temple was, right? So we had the tabernacle, which had the, or I guess in the temple, we had the court of the Gentiles, which is the court way on the outside. Then you had the court of the women, which was a little bit further in. Then the court of the Jews, which was further in from that. Then the temple itself. And inside the temple, you had a room called the Holy of Holies. And the tabernacle, that would have been set aside as a separate room. Inside of there sat the Ark of the Covenant that had the tablets of the... Uh, 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 Ten Commandments that were given to Moses sitting on the mercy seat. And once a year, the high priest was allowed to enter that place, offer a sacrifice on behalf of the sins of the people, and then come back out. That duty was so dangerous because God was so holy, and that place was set aside as a place to exemplify just how holy God was. You were only allowed to enter once a year. You were only allowed to do very specific things, and then you had to get back out because you were so dirty even as high priest, that entering into the presence of God like that was only allowed under very strict measures. It was so dangerous that they would actually tie a rope around the ankle of the high priest when he went in there, because if he messed up and God struck him dead, you couldn't go in after him, so they'd have to drag him back out. That's how serious God is about his holiness. And so the ancient believer would have understood God's holiness in that regard and would have thought about coming before a holy God with uh, those measures in place. You could not directly come before God. You had to go through the prescribed priesthood in order to speak to him. You didn't have Jesus to pray to, to act as an intercessor between you and God. And so then when this says, we have this sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. That tells us that what we are relying on is so good and so holy and so perfect that it is anchored on the inside of that curtain. The place that, that only one man who was specifically set aside could only enter once a year to do a very specific set of things and then had to get back out. The thing that we trust in lives inside of that place and never leaves. And that's where we're anchored. So to them, that would have been very, very meaningful. So then going on in verse 20, who is this anchor? It's Jesus. Where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So uh, Melchizedek is this kind of weird character from the Old Testament. Uh, I asked Nicole how deep I should go into this. She was like, uh. <laughs> This could get weird. Uh, long story short, uh, if you remember when Abram, uh, he was chasing after, his, uh, after Lot and his family, uh, a marauding band of uh, other tribes had come and stolen, kidnapped them or taken them away. He went after them to try to get them back. God gave him victory. He saved Lot, saved everyone, plundered the camp, was coming back, and then he meets this priest of the Most High God named Melchizedek, and he's a bit mysterious. We don't have much about him. We've got a little chunk in Genesis. We've got a tiny mention in Psalm, and then this bit in Hebrews. There's more about him uh, earlier in Hebrews, but he's kind of an odd character to, to sort out. But what we do know is that he was a king priest of sorts, and that he at that time was God's representative on earth as uh, a, a person that you could go through in order to commune with God. So Abram's coming back from that raid. He meets with Melchizedek, and he offers the tenth share. This is where we get the idea of a tithe from. He gives it to Melchizedek, says, God gave me victory, therefore I should give him a portion of this. I give him a tenth of what I earned. So that's who this Melchizedek guy is, and he's what represents what we call types. 
So in th uh, uh, theological study, there's, a, uh, uh, there's a, a branch called typology, and this looks at what are called types. And types are things that function as analogies, or uh, biblical, biblically they would be called shadows, things that kind of picture what is going to come someday, but is not here yet. So for him, he was a type of Christ. Uh, so uh, an example of this would be like the sacrificial lamb that was used in the, in the uh, temple system. That didn't actually forgive sins, right? Uh, uh, the shedding of, bowl, of bulls and all that, like uh, David tells us, and this is not the remission of sins, but it's a picture of the remission of sins. It's a picture of penitently coming before God, asking for forgiveness, and then God granting it to you, and you seeing the price that had to be paid for your sins. So it pictured what Christ would become when he was given on the cross. Uh, another example would be the bronze serpent uh, that uh, Moses lifted up in the wilderness that everyone had to look upon in order to be healed from the sickness that was going through their veins when they were bitten by all the little snakes. That bronze serpent was a type. It was a picture of who Christ would become, right? Christ needs to be lifted up in order that we might be able to look upon him and find healing for our sickness that is inside of us. Same idea. It wasn't the actual thing, but it looked forward to something that was greater that was going to be coming down the road. So Melchizedek, as this kind of king-priest, was a type of Christ, looking forward to the day when Christ himself would come, and he would be the ultimate eternal fulfillment of what that was. So all this is saying is Christ now is our forerunner because he has become the high priest forever and ever after the order of Melchizedek in the way that Melchizedek was a temporary fulfillment of that. So really quickly, let's come back. Let's start at the top and recap it. Know that we pulled it apart verse by verse starting in verse 13. So when God made a promise to Abraham, when he made that covenant with him, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. God is the greatest thing, so he swears only by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. We have seen the fulfillment of what God gave to Abraham. Verse 16, for people swear by something greater than themselves and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, when God wanted to show to us, those of us who are heirs of that promise, that he does not change, what did he do? He guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, one the oath, and two in which it is impossible for God to lie, that he does not lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have reason to believe. We have the sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, a place that is so holy you could only get in there once a year. Now we have something permanently there, the man Jesus, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So those are some pretty fantastic verses. I'm actually really surprised this is not more often memorized by Christians uh, in the same way like John 3.16 or Romans 8.28 or any of the others are. I'm surprised this one is not memorized more often as that because the encouragement that this offers to us as a full faithful assurance that God will never renege on his promises that when he tells us he's going to do something he is faithful to it is incredible. So application then for us. We, we've understood what this meant historically in its context. We know who it was written to. We see where it sits. We've picked it apart verse by verse to understand what it's saying. So then for us now, living in the 21st century, not being a Hebrew congregation in the first century, 
What does this mean to us? So to better understand this, let's uh, back up just a little bit in the book again to give us some uh, context. So you remember in uh, chapter 5, verse 12, we read there was a, a, a bit abrasive correction to the congregation, right? So in verse 12, he says, so for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you, again, the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For one who lives on milk is unskilled and unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. That's pretty rough. <laughs> like, imagine if uh, me or Rob or Randy was to get up here and to basically tell you, like, look, you guys, you've been a church for almost 50 years and you're all still a bunch of children. You're all still drinking milk and you really should be eating solid food. That's pretty rough, right? You'd be like, whew. But... Uh, guy who was preaching this to the Hebrews, writing this to the Hebrews, doesn't pull his punches because, you know, good godly love both uh, is abrasive in that it encourages you to work greater, but then it also turns around and encourages you. So he writes this to him, but then keep going. In chapter 6, verse 9, we have, for though we speak in this way, right, they, they know that they're writing in a pretty abrasive fashion to try to get them to realize that they need to be striving harder. But he says, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. So then it switches to encouragement, right? First, there's the, you need to be doing better, but at the same time, don't look to yourself as some, like, I'm going to pull myself up by my bootstraps, you know, this is all of me, okay, I need to do better. They say, no, look to the assurance of your salvation, and that's where they offer the encouragement. They want them to stand firm on unchangeable truths. When that, in that context, when they wanted those Hebrews to turn away from the truth of Scripture and instead find their comfort and their assurance and their validation and their acceptance in something else, whether it was temple sacrifices in this case or in our context, whether it's all the things that the world tells you you should look to for your assurance, instead, Scripture, through Holy Spirit, tells us we have this sure and steadfast anchor of the soul in Christ in his word. So we as Christians then need to stand on these unchangeable truths. Right? When someone tries to tell you, times have changed. The most important thing about you now is your skin color, or the most important thing about you now is your sex, or the most important thing about you now is your identity, or the most important thing about you now is your job, or how many followers you have on Twitter, or whether or not you use your Twitter to say the right stuff, or whether you're on the right side of history, or, oh my gosh, it's 2020, you've got to get on board with this because it's 2020, and they just keep saying that for some reason it's meaningful, I don't know why, we can go, hold on. What does scripture actually tell us about this topic? What has the unchangeable word of God, the anger of our soul, said about these things? And so when we do that, perhaps we'll go to Revelation 7, verses 9 through 10, and read, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's an amen right there. Or maybe Galatians 3, 25 through 29. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. That is, we are no longer under the law. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. 
For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is now, therefore, neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Remember what we read before? So when somebody comes and says, the most important thing about you is your skin color. The most important thing about you is your job. The most important thing about you is your social media. If histor- you know, most important thing about you is whether or not the historians are going to like you. You can say all of that is less important than the status of your soul. Because I know I have looked at the sure, firm truth and looked at this thing, which is the steadfast anchor of my soul, and seen that God is going to bring people of all tribes, all nations, all tongues, and he is going to bring them before the throne. And the one thing that is going to separate the sheep from the goats is what is your relationship to Christ Jesus? So in closing, my question to you is, are you trusting now in God's oath? Are you trusting now in God's inability to lie? And is your anchor set within the veil, the unchangeable truth of God's scripture? If it's true that that is the case for you, then blessings upon you, amen and amen, that is a wonderful thing. And if it's true for you, then you can remember that thesis that we started with, that we must remind ourselves of the promises of God so that we might be anchored in the truth in the midst of a world that loves falsehood. But my dear brothers and sisters, if that's not the case for you, if your soul is not anchored within the veil, and if you can feel yourself being pulled left and right by what the world wants you to do, and you're not searching scripture for the truth, then I beg you, come to the cross now. Find your anchor inside that veil, and like this Hebrew congregation that was immature, listen to the words of Paul and hear the abrasiveness of his words when he says, don't be children, be mature, and learn to set yourself in the truth of the scripture. If you're not yet a believer and you're interested in that, please come talk to me, come talk to Rob, come talk to Randy. We would love to talk with you about how you too can be anchored inside of the veil. So if you would, go ahead and close your eyes with me and we'll offer our final prayer. Heavenly Father, I cannot possibly say it any better than the old hymn says it. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love and ever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. May this be the earnest prayer of our hearts this week, and may it also be for the rest of our lives until you call us home to glory. We pray this all in your name. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help share the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life.